Hear the word of the Lord. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further our clothing, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be uh, absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but, we're well known, but are well known to God, and, I, and, trust, are, and also trust are well known in your conscience. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore... From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteousness of God in him. So far the word of the Lord. Now if you turn your Bibles to the reading of the text, which you find in 1 Philippians 1, the verses 12 through 18. 
1 Philippians 1, 12 to 18a. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that, if, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. So far the word of the Lord. Beloved in Christ our Lord, what is the gospel? If someone was to come to you and ask, I've heard about the word gospel. I've heard in connection with you Christians. Can you explain it to me? What would you say? This is an important question that we must be prepared to answer as Christians. After all, this is the message that is central to the church. The gospel, what it's all about. This is our identity. This is our message. This is our hope. And this is our salvation. So what is the gospel? And your answer may change slightly over time, but let it be clear. Or let me be clear, the answer to this question is not just an opinion. That's not why it changes. For the gospel is fact. Unmoving, unchanging, unwavering fact. From the time that it was first stated in the Garden of Eden until the day when it was sung by that great multitude in heaven, from creation to recreation, the gospel stays the same. The gospel is, first of all, a story. The story of Jesus and his love. The story of God having love for a sinful and wretched people that defies all logic. The story of the love that required the death of the Messiah. Not because our worth was more than all the money or, or diamonds of the world, but because our sin had racked up that much debt. The story of the love that literally changed the world. But the gospel is also a message. It's a message of freedom, a message of victory. It's the message that struggling sinners do not have to fear the wrath of God anymore. 
because his wrath has been poured out every last drop. The message of freedom for the captives, the message of victory over sin, and the suffering and death. And the gospel is also a cure. It's a cure for everything wrong in this world, everything that we did to this world when we rejected God as God and tried to make ourselves gods, just like Satan did. And when we decided that we would be the ones to choose what is right and what is wrong, remaking the world in our image, and what an image that turned out to be, a broken and sinful world made this way by broken and sinful people. But the gospel changes all that. The gospel changes our natural inclination for hatred and transforms it into love. By nature, by our corrupt, sick, and dying sinful nature, we hate both God and our neighbor. But the gospel, the gospel begins to transform that hatred into love so that we can truly follow the law of God. This is the gospel. It's not just some words on a page. It's not just 12 doctrinal statements that we must confess. It isn't the means to the end. The gospel, beloved, the gospel is the beginning of the road. It is the road itself. And it's the destination at the end of the road. The story of the gospel of salvation will turn into the song of salvation. The everlasting, never-ending song of praise that will, bring, that will ring out in the courts of glory forever. The gospel, the gospel is the best thing in all creation. And we should cry out with the Apostle Paul, I will rejoice in the gospel. And we see three points. I will rejoice in the spread through chains. I will rejoice in the spread through courageous brothers. And I will rejoice in the spread through corrupt opponents. We see in the first place, I will rejoice in the spread through chains. We heard about Paul's great love for the church at Philippi. His love for them and whom they were when he met them. And his growing love for them as they grew in faith and the knowledge of the gospel. And in Paul's great love for them, in the joy that he felt over their partnership in the gospel with him, he wanted to under, him, them to understand his priorities. He wanted them to imitate him as he imitated Jesus Christ. And he was worried that the fact he was imprisoned and would, would distract them from some very important facts. They were mourning. They were concerned that Paul was in chains. But what does Paul write them? Before we look at our text, let me remind you how Paul started this letter. After signing his name as the writer, and after addressing them as saints, Paul gives them a blessing. The same blessing that I proclaimed over all, you all at the start of this morning service. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these aren't just words. They aren't just empty words. But instead, these words have power and significance. May grace be yours. Grace, the fundamental message of the gospel. Grace in the place of punishment. Grace being given many blessings for the sake of Christ. Where for our sake, all we deserve is punishment. But grace is a blessing instead of a curse. That's grace. May peace be yours. The peace that passes all understanding. Paul expounds on this in chapter 4. The peace of God. The feeling that everything will be made right one day. The confident assurance that God has everything in his sovereign and loving hands. We can stop tensing our bodies and stop holding our breaths. We can relax. We can fold into God because of his limitless power. Because of his limitless love. The Apostle Paul is a man who was a recipient of, of uh, grace. He was an apostle who started his relation with, of, with Christ as persecuting the church. And yet, through the all-powerful grace of his Savior, he was granted the gift of being God's apostle to the Gentiles, sent before kings and rulers, a man who one day would die for his faith, condemned to death by Caesar. And the Apostle Paul is very clearly a recipient of peace. The peace is how he can be in chains and still be filled with so much joy. Paul's circumstances are so much worse than our circumstances, but his attitude is so much better. His praise, so much louder. His love, so much stronger. And how is this the case? It is because Paul is the man who looks at all the facts. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is instructing uh, the confused and frightened Philippian church. Don't get me wrong. Just because I'm in chains does not mean that God isn't working. He is. He's working. Let me tell you the ways. I want you to know, brothers, listen up. This is important. Pay close attention. Hang on to every word, Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's not about me, Paul says. It's not about me, but it's about Christ. It's about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Paul doesn't minimize the difficulty. His encouragement to the church is not that the prison isn't quite so bad as they might think. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has been exaggerated. The walls aren't really that damp. I'm not beaten by every single soldier. The food is bad here, but at least I don't have a lot of it. This isn't Paul's encouragement to the church because honestly, 
What a horrible encouragement that would be. It's bad, but it's not that bad. And I fear this is how we attempt to encourage ourselves uh, and those that are around us. Well, it's not forever. Well, other places have it worse. Well, it is what it is. We all say these things. But how often are you really comforted by them? We do not find comfort in minimizing hard truths. We find our ultimate comfort in focusing on the ultimate truth. And focus on the comforting and life-changing truth of the gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You might think that my change would prevent the gospel from being shared, but in actuality, it has opened many doors for me. Because of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, just like his imprisonment in Philippi, he had the chance to share the gospel. In Philippi, the jailer and his family were saved. And here in Rome, Paul has been given the opportunity to preach to the entire imperial guard. And even before this, the gospel spread as a result of his imprisonment. If you look into the history of Paul, of how Paul got here and changed in Rome, you can look at Acts 22 through 28. And you will see how God worked in these most unexpected circumstances. Paul had been given the amazing gift of preaching to the Roman governors, Felix and then Festus. He proclaimed the gospel to King Agrippa of Judea until Agrippa was almost converted, we read. And who knows what the Holy Spirit did with Paul's words in the days and years after that trial. But in Rome itself, the word spread among the imperial guard, even though Paul probably didn't get the opportunity to preach directly to each one of the soldiers, since there were a proper, approximately about 9,000 of them. But the word spread the message that there was a prisoner who was filled with joy. A prisoner who was at peace in desperate circumstances. A man who was prisoned because he appealed to Caesar. A prisoner who was in chains for Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Did you catch it? The gospel spread among, beyond the imperial guard through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. And it's not clear from this verse what Paul means, but turn with me a few pages forward to Philippians 4, in the end of the letter, starting at verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's story has spread all across Rome. 
from the soldiers in prison to the slaves in the house of Caesar. And you couldn't pay for publicity like this. Paul's case had become the talk of the town. And the first question anyone would ask when you confront them with a man like Paul, why? Why are you like this? How? How is this possible? And Paul would excitedly launch into the gospel message, the divine love story, the message of transformation, the cure of the storms of life, the cure for the death sentence of sin. And soon the sound of Paul's change clinging would become indistinguishable from the sound of the gospel. The sound of Paul's change would become indistinguishably from the sound of the gospel. Paul's chains, no matter how painful, no matter how unjust, served to advance the gospel. And so he could rejoice in them. Not rejoicing in their pain, not rejoicing in the injustice of it all, but rejoicing in the higher truth, rejoicing in the gospel truth. And it's truly awesome and wonderful that altogether unsurprisingly known, knowing our God that the benefits of Paul's imprisonment didn't stop here. But they continue with faithful brothers becoming more and more courageous in their evangelism as a result of Paul's imprisonment. And that's our second point. Paul is not the only preacher of the gospel at this time in church history. From Scripture, we might tend to get that idea that Paul single-handedly was the evangelist to the furthest corners of the Roman world, and the rest of the apostles just sat around Jerusalem. But Acts 1-8 to was about Peter. But Acts 9 through the rest of the New Testament seems to be about Paul. And honestly, the apostle Paul would be horrified that we have this idea about him. Because it's not about him. It's about Jesus Christ. First and foremost. It's about Jesus Christ always. Paul was just a messenger. Just a weak clay pot. Believers have been given this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. It's not about the jar. And there is more than just one jar out there. Paul is not jealously hoarding his role as evangelist and apostle, but he rejoices that there are others to preach outside while he preaches inside. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. But most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's examine this a little more closely. On the outset, it seems that this is impossible. How could Paul's imprisonment, for the sake of Christ, give the other brothers boldness Encourage. Wouldn't the fear of their own chains silence the gospel? 
Well, this would seem to be the logical conclusion, but that's not what happened. Because fear is a very interesting thing. Though fear may seem to be powerful, all its power can be conquered in an instant. Maybe the children among us can think of times that they have been scared. Many of us, when we're young, are scared of the dark. At night, maybe we wake up and the clothing on the chair turns into a monster in our sleepy minds. But the fear can feel so strong. But if we get up and turn on the light very quickly, that fear fades away. The monster is nothing more than a pile of clothing. And clothing can't hurt us. We breathe a sigh of relief. And before we know it, we're sleeping again. And this is exactly what would have happened with Paul's co-workers, Paul's fellow evangelists. With bated breath, they watched as he was put in prison. There was fear. The heartbeat increased. Their breath became shallow. But when they saw how God provided for him, when they saw that the soil was fertile and receptive to the seed of the gospel, Paul's imprisonment encouraged them. It spurred them on to greater things. And if this is the worst that Satan can throw at us, if the consequence for preaching the gospel is continuing to preach the gospel, why not preach it more boldly? The roadblock that Satan puts in our way, it wasn't a roadblock at all, but a starting block. You know, those things that runners have on the track, they push off from there and go. This is the worst Satan can do, make us stronger. Paul's imprisonment and the success of the gospel as a result showed Paul's co-workers that there was nothing to fear. The only thing to be afraid of was fear itself, and that fear was proven unfounded. If they would be imprisoned with Paul, chained side by side with him, would it matter? Would it ultimately matter? No, for the gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is bigger than freedom or imprisonment. The gospel is bigger than our freedom. No matter how we are limited in the expression of our faith, God will always find a way. God can work just as powerfully through prison change as through missionary journeys. God can work just as powerfully through sermons that somebody finds online as sermons preached in a church building. Through freedom or through imprisonment, the gospel will go out. Because the gospel is bitter, bigger than anything Satan and his horde of demons can throw at it. It's bigger than any government or power that raises itself up against it. And in contrast, in any contest, the gospel will always win. Evil may be powerful, but the gospel will always win. So how can we not be courageous? How can we not be motivated to share it? No matter what is done, 
it will continue to spread. The gospel cannot be stopped because God cannot be stopped. It will spread over the whole earth and reach every ear before the end. And this should encourage us, for the worst that the devil can do to us is to send us to be with God. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Is there anything more motivating than this? But it appears that not everyone who spread the gospel while Paul was imprisoned and those same good, had those same good and pure motives. In fact, there were opponents who spread the gospel from corrupt motives. And yet, Paul still rejoiced. And this is our final point. The Apostle Paul rejoices at those who are sharing the gospel out of corrupt motives. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict, in my to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. This is curious. The corruption of other, preacher, uh, preachers, other preachers does not dim Paul's joy. Was the governor Festus right? Did Paul's great learning drive him out of his mind? Or has his imprisonment skewed his priorities away from purity? After all, is purity not of the utmost importance? Well, as with many difficult questions, the answer is yes and no. Let's begin with a yes. Pure preaching of the gospel is the first and foremost mark of the true church. If a church is not preaching the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, it has lost its way. It doesn't matter if they donate millions of dollars to, to the underprivileged on Monday morning, if on Sunday morning they preach a false Christ, if they preach a false gospel, if they reject Jesus Christ as Savior and still give money to worthy causes, they have stopped being a church and have become a charity. And non-Christian charities have done an amazing amount of good for the world. But in no way are they churches. And it's offensive and damaging for them to pretend that they are. When the church does not preach the pure gospel, it has stopped being a church. And yet, look what Paul is saying here. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Purity of the gospel is supreme importance. And it would seem that the true gospel is being proclaimed. Paul has harsh words elsewhere for those who corrupt the gospel. Think of what he says in the letter to the Galatians. If anyone should preach to you a gospel, Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Purity of the gospel is most important. 
But purity of the preacher is less important. And I know this sounds controversial. I know that this might be difficult to wrap your minds around. But this is what Paul is teaching the Philippians here. So let's go through it and try to understand it a little bit more. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. When we hear this, when we read this, our minds are immediately drawn to the end of the sentence, envy and rivalry. That's not how it should be. These preachers are false and corrupt. Someone needs to stop them. But but where does Paul's emphasis lie? Some indeed preach Christ. And the rest fades away to a matter of secondary importance. We see this in the case in his rejoicing. It says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's not thankful that there are corrupt preachers. Paul does not rejoice in the sins of his fellow evangelists. But he rejoices that the gospel is spreading. If the preacher is corrupt, he will have to answer to that before God on the day of judgment. After all, as James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The fact that God has used you to bring others to the true faith does not cancel your sins. Doing good works is false motives by false motives cannot save your soul. Doing good works from false motives does not count as a thank offering before God. But what it does do, these good works from false motives, what it does do is that it helps your neighbor. And this is what Paul rejoices in. The preacher may be corrupt. The preacher may have to repent earnestly on his knees. But the preacher isn't what it's all about. The preacher's job is to step back, to step behind the pulpit, to step back behind the cross of Christ and hold it out for the listener to portray Christ for the one who seeks him. The goal of the gospel overrides everything else in Paul's life. And so it should be for us as well. And what are you willing to do for the spread of the gospel? Paul was willing to be considered out of his mind. We heard that in in our reading, didn't we? 2 Corinthians 5. And if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it is for you. I'll ask you again. What are you willing to do for the spread of the gospel? It's so precious, so wonderful, so powerful in your mind that you will do whatever it takes to get out there. Would you be willing to suffer injustice? With your constitutional freedoms taken away for the gospel to spread? If God worked through our closed doors bringing about a revival in Owen Sound, Would it be worthwhile? 
Would you be willing to give everything up to leave your former life behind only to be falsely accused, mocked, and beaten, tortured, and then executed as a criminal? Because that's what Paul was willing to do for the gospel. And that's what our Savior Jesus Christ did to accomplish the goal of the gospel. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, left his glorious life in heaven, rightly worshipped and adored by all creation, and came to this earth to be born humbly, laid in a manger. Even though he was God, he was not recognized on the earth he created, but was called evil and wicked. His opponents plotted to take his life falsely, accusing him and bl with blasphemy and rebellion. Even though he was innocent, he was condemned to death by corrupt earthly judge. He was mocked, beaten, nailed to a cross. And as he breathed his last, he declared triumphantly, it is finished. And the gospel was accomplished. Through his death, we are brought to life. Through his punishment, we are forgiven. And on the third day, when he arose again from the dead, we too were resurrected to a new life. Our sins have been put to death with Christ, and our souls are raised up with him. This is the gospel, and I will rejoice in it as long as I live. Amen.